I'm Nick Harcourt for AKG Stories Behind the Sessions with Cliff Martinez. Cliff is a musician and composer who cut his teeth as a drummer, most notably with Captain Beefheart and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he joins us on this episode to talk about the Chili Peppers' first self-titled album released in 1984. We're also going to talk about his transition from behind the kit to a career composing score for film and television, most notably Sex, Lies and Videotape, Solaris, Contagion and Traffic for Steven Soderbergh and Drive, Only God Forgives and The Neon Demon for Nicholas Winding Refn. Cliff, welcome. Nice to be here. Great to see you, man. Nice place you got here. How did you join the Chili Peppers? You came in, you were drafted in after Jack Irons left and to make the first record, essentially, right? Yeah, I knew Flea and we sh I shared a rehearsal space with the Chili Peppers. And Flea was also kind of a, a scholar of the punk rock, Los Angeles punk rock music scene. Right. He played in Fear early on, and I was in The Weirdos. So we knew each other, and we kind of had a respect for, for uh, and we had a passion for the, the, the local punk rock scene. So I, I think I didn't even have to audition. I think when Jack Irons left the group, Flea just said, we need a drummer. Do you, do you want to join the band? Right. And I had seen, I think, two of their shows at that point. I think their first show was one song. Their second show was two songs. And they did the sock thing. Sure. And uh, I just went, yeah, that's, that's, the next, that's next level punk rock. I'm in. And uh, so I just said, yeah. And that's, that's how I got in. Can you take us through a typical day in the studio with... Andy Gill? Well, he, he had kind of a dry wit being English. And um, one day, Andy wanted to use a drum machine, which he had used on his own album. I forget the, um, his most recent album at the time that was kind of poppy. He was very keen on using the drum machine on the Chili Peppers record, but he knew the band would, would probably destroy it or something, that they were hostile to that idea. Mm. So I think he thought if he can get Cliff to embrace it, and I think he knew that I was kind of into it, then we can get it on the record. But at that time, the drum machine had evolved quite a bit. It was now the Lynn sampling drum machine, which utilized real drum recordings. And I think as a sequencer, too, it was, it was more sophisticated than the Roland device that I had. So my feeling when I took the machine home was, oh, man, I'm going the way of the brontosaurus here. <laughs> I, I'm going to be extinct. Right. This is, and at that time, in the 80s, drum beats were, everybody kind of, the style was sort of simplistic, and the drum machine was the perfect thing to take over from, from human drummers. And I don't remember the conversations I had with the band, but uh, we tried it. We tried it on, I think we had one track that was supposed to be the hit. We used it on that. I guess I programmed the drum machine and the track was ultimately despised by the band and never made it on the, oh, it was called Human Satellite. That was, <laughs> that was, that was the name of, you know, what was ostensibly that was our, supposed to be our, the hit. Our hit. That right. was going to be the hit. Had the drum machine on it and uh, everybody just, despised the, the, the piece and it never made it to the album. So you recorded this in El Dorado 
studio, uh, which I believe at the time was smack in the middle of Hollywood, right? Yeah, I think it was next to the Palace Theater. Like Hollywood and Vine? Yeah, I think it was sandwiched between, it was on Vine, sandwiched between Hollywood and Franklin, I believe. What did you learn from, from that time? As you mentioned, none of you had really spent much time in a studio making, making records. What did you come away with from that time? I, um, I suppose I thought that there was like vast potential for recording. We had done, I think we had some brass on the record a little bit on a song called Hank. I brought in some junk metal percussion, some break drums and, and pipes and stuff that we had on a track. And um, I thought that overall, I kind of liked the process of recording. So I was inspired by the possibility of multi-track recording and, and editing. It was kind of primitive at the time. I think there was a sampler, an AMS. I think they swapped out my snare drum for a, you know, my real snare drum for a, a sample of a snare drum. So I was impressed with the possibilities of the recording studio and the beginnings of you know, what later became an explosion of new computer technology and, and music. I suppose that was my big takeaway. And subsequently, I guess I wasn't quite as intimidated by the studio uh, as I was initially. You made one more album with the band, right? Freaky Styley, mm -hmm. uh, with George Clinton producing. Yeah. Uh, very different um, approach I would imagine, in studio. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was, um, we did a lot of drugs because we were in Detroit and, you know, went in Rome. I remember we cut our basic tracks in a couple of days. It, that went really quickly. All the vocals and the overdubs and things uh, came later. And it was a smoother ride for, the, for all of us because we loved George Clinton. We, we respected him. And he was a good choice for, for that material. We learned quite a bit about him and his process by um, hanging around United Sound, which Aretha Franklin was down the hall recording. A lot of the P-Funk guys were in the, in the lounge area just waiting to be called to do vocals or hand claps or finger snaps or something. That was really a great experience. So technology was already a part of your process, was a tool so to speak, in your kit bag. When did you decide you wanted to explore that outside of a band and start moving into the world of composing? I think I began to get a, a sense of life outside the Chili Peppers when I bought uh, some new musical gear that I was fascinated by. Prophet 2000, one of the early sampling keyboards, SB12 sampling drum machine, and a Roland MSQ-700, a sequencer, I think Roland's first sequencer. And um, I knew that that stuff had no place in the Chili Peppers. They, they just, the whole drum machine experience on the first album was tumultuous and a lot of friction over that. So I knew I couldn't do it there, but I didn't know where I was going to go with it. I used to ho host rude body noise parties at, at my house where 
my friends would step up to the microphone and, and make some kind of ugly vocal sound. And I would make a sound collage out of it and play it back on the samplers. And then I would kind of make a composition out of it. And it was, um, it was distasteful. It wasn't particularly musical. Was this but, for your own entertainment? But somebody had to do it um, <laughs> for the most part, yeah. So I would walk around with this cassette tape with these weird semi-musical sound collages on it. There was a video director named Steven Johnson who had had some success doing Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer video sure. in big time. And he was, he was friends of the Chili Peppers, and he was, he was going to do a, a video of us for our second album. Then he got the job directing the first season of Pee-wee's Playhouse. And I gave him the cassette tape of the Rude Body Noise sure. collages. And I said, I, I can do that. And he said, do you have a fair light? I, I think is what he said. I said, no, but listen to the tape. And so he, he liked it. And he said, unfortunately, they just fired me. <laughs> I don't think he did. Or the, maybe it was, they did three seasons of Pee-wee's Playhouse. And then Pee-wee himself, you know, got caught in a scandal. Right. And they didn't re renew the show. So I don't know. between couple of the seasons, Stephen got fired and he handed off my tape and I guess a recommendation to whoever was next in charge. And that was my first scoring job was Pee-wee's Playhouse. But indirectly that led you to Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. Tell yeah. us, tell, tell us about that. He heard. Well, I'm still, this. I'm still walking around Hollywood with this cassette tape of the rude body noise. Was that your demo? At the yes, time? <laughs> that was it. But now it included Pee Wee's Playhouse, right? And uh, which was kind of a legit credit. A lot of my film industry colleagues at the time were sound editors, and one of them, uh, Mark Mangini, was working on um, a feature film called Alienation, and they had asked Mark, who's kind of almost like a professional quality guitarist good musician they asked him to create i think jerry goldsmith was scoring the film but they asked mark to create some music that the aliens might listen to and he called me and asked me to come over and and collaborate with him so at that time steven soderberg was sleeping on mark's couch and they were friends and he just walked in one day and Mark and I were working on this music for um, for a scene in Alienation, and Stephen sat down on the couch, and before we were even introduced, he started making comments on the music. And I could tell that he wasn't a musician, but his instincts about how the music fit the picture mm -hmm. were pretty pretty spot on afterwards he said um i'm working on my first feature film and i think i'd like to have you score it and i said great here's my demo tape <laughs> <laughs> and later he called me and said this will be perfect for the film and i think he hadn't even shot the film yet sex lies and videotape but he said this will be perfect this is great 
months later, I got a rough cut of Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm -hmm. And I saw it, and I um, immediately called Stephen, and I said, yeah, I, I, I don't think that the Pee-wee stuff doesn't seem to, I don't think that's going to work for the film. And he said, oh, yeah, we'll do something different. So years later, Stephen said something like, um, I hired Cliff because he was the only composer I knew. <laughs> Probably some, some truth to that. As you've worked through, through, you know, from the beginning of just weird body noises to full-blown orchestral scores, um, do you have a favorite score? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's Solaris. Mostly, I, I can't listen to my music after it's done. There's something about Solaris that I can still listen to it and enjoy it. But I would say, um, I'm sure John Fogarty wonders, you know, why can't I just roll out of bed and write another Proud Mary, you know, today? I don't know what it is I was doing or smoking or what it was that made Solaris what it is, but it's the high watermark for me. And one of the things about film music is that no one really knows how good a job the composer does unless they've seen the film without any music. That's when you really can measure the contribution that the composer makes. If you saw Solaris without the music and then saw it with the music, I think it's, it, it's probably the, the one score that did more to, to elevate and improve and univer universalize the, the story of Solaris more than any score I've done. That's such an important part of the storytelling, though, isn't it? Knowing when to put music in and knowing when to let the actual action on screen play. Yeah. I mean, my, my theory is music is really firing on all cylinders in, in film. When it's telling you something that can't be expressed in dialogue or in images, when it's doing something else. And I thought Solaris did a lot of that. There's a lot of other functions of music. It, it often does more, you know, more traditional things. But when it's expressing the inexpressible, that's when music is really, you know, earning the paycheck. Well, long may you continue composing. It's been great talking to you, Cliff. Thanks so much. Pleasure.